Hello, everyone. I'm Lee Green, and welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders in all walks of life. So we'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today and welcome to another episode of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green. And first off, I just would like to apologize. It has been a while since I've posted my last episode here on the podcast. And you know, I just got to be honest with you, it's been a little crazy. My company got acquired in January 2019. And as part of the acquisition, I'm now vice president of partnerships for Grin, and I've been a little busy. So apologies for the delay. I've got lots of great interviews and episodes coming up. So I'm going to get them out for you as soon as possible, keep them rolling out. But just wanted to let you know what's been going on and appreciate you guys tuning in. I've got a great show for you today, an interview with the co-founder and CEO of Dream Pops. David Greenfield. In this episode, David and I chat about his entrepreneurial journey from being a hip hop artist to working for Tesla to living in Italy, where he became inspired to build Dream Pops. And if you haven't heard of Dream Pops, they're changing the game in the ice cream world. And they basically are providing this amazing, delicious, modern, plant based frozen dessert that looks really cool. It tastes really good. And wait for it, it's actually really good for you too. <laughs> They're packed with superfoods. They're dairy, gluten, and soy-free. And they're under 100 calories each. So you basically can't say no, right? I mean, it's like you just have to try it. We talk about the spiritual side of building a business, which I feel like a lot of people don't talk about. And we talk about his first partnership with Starbucks. So grab a dream pop from your local Whole Foods and tune in to hear David's incredible story. If you like what you hear on the show, don't forget to subscribe and leave us an awesome review. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. David, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm excited to hear your story in building Dream Pops. Yes, it's been uh, quite a ride, but I appreciate you guys, uh, you know, bringing us on and letting us share our story. Yeah. So let's talk about it a little bit. What is Dream Pops? So the way I like to break it down is that we are reimagining vegan sweets and confections for a new generation. If you go into a grocery store or just look on your typical grocery shelf in the frozen section, I think that there is a huge white space and lack of plant-based, clean, better-for-you options, specifically within novelties, but also in, in all of ice cream. Yeah. And so I think there's a lack of imagination, creativity, and for us, um, I'm plant-based. Our group, our team is really about trying to provide better, cleaner options for those people who want to avoid dairy. Yeah. And so we were talking earlier about, you know, our end of eating meat, um, yes. which is fairly new for both of us. It seems like over a year now we've stopped eating meat. And so that was kind of an inspiration for you. I agree with you. There's not very much out there. It's very hard to find a really good, especially dessert um, that's vegan. So 
Was that part of that journey? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it originally started with just a pain point. So I was uh, an investment banker working wait, late nights in my cubicle, eating tons of pints of ice cream and sweets and Haagen-Dazs bars. And, you have a sweet tooth. Uh, the biggest. Anyone will, uh, will uh, that knows me knows very big sweet tooth. And so that's, I think, where the initial spark and inspiration kind of came from. But the journey of, of really trying to attack this, I never had a plan. My partner never had a plan to go into popsicles, mm-hmm. ice cream, novelties. That really started with just a trip to Cartagena, Colombia, where that inspiration really kicked off and came from. So what made you stop eating meat? I think, look, I have eaten meat previously, so I can't just say I've been on this wave for a long time. A number of components, I care a lot about health and investing in health. And you know, a good friend of mine at the beginning of this year, January 1st, we said, what if we eliminate meat from our diet? And we've watched you know, a number of documentaries, done a ton of research, have always wanted to do it. Um, we're like, how are we going to feel? So I think one was health. Um, I definitely, you know, with regards to caring about animals and, and, and the cruelty of animals, that's another important aspect. I just think net-net, environmentally, health-wise, and for with regards to the treatment of animals, it's a positive diet and is a, a net-net positive. Yeah, definitely. I agree. I uh, definitely binge watched quite a few Netflix uh, documentaries. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. And you see enough of them and you're like, okay. um, There's something here. (laughs) There's something here and I've got to make a major change. Yes. No more ignoring the reality. So let's start way back your early childhood. You know, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? What was your childhood like? So I'm an LA native, grew up in Encino, California you know, love Los Angeles, been lucky enough to travel a bit with school and work. But I went to interesting and awesome high school called New Community Jewish High School, which is now called D Toledo. So private Jewish education. Grew up with two parents who are very entrepreneurial um, in their own right and heavily influenced both mine and my sisters as well, uh, journeys to kind of embrace entrepreneurship and build businesses for ourselves. But I think in the beginning, you know, my dad has an amazing company that he built called the Ant Farm, which was in the entertainment industry. So um, he was really applying interesting and innovative marketing methods to movie trailers and movie previews. And my mom is actually a rabbi and was also an aerobics instructor, but they both had their own businesses and instilled that into me and embraced that creativity. So when you were a kid, were you like, you know, you had the lemonade stand, were you selling you know, Beanie Babies? I mean, I've heard a lot of different stories on the show. So. Yeah, it's funny. I definitely had Beanie Babies and was selling them. Uh, you know, I would, I would set up, I don't know if you remember Neopets, but I used to play Neopets, whether they're online games and just trying to, to monetize them through various platforms. I had a lemonade stand. I definitely had baseball cards and jersey cards and was constantly trying to find quick and small ways to hustle. Yeah, cool. Absolutely, yeah. So um, did you go to college? I did go to college. I went to Berkeley in the Bay Area. Loved it. It was really an amazing experience to just kind of get out of Los Angeles, be exposed to a lot of the technology um, that was being built and, and that incredible you know, exposure to the Silicon Valley. I studied uh, business administration and, and uh, while I was in college, but also in high school, I tried a couple of different business ventures, which They weren't quite as successful, but I learned a lot of really great experiences from both of them that applied to this. Everything from a sunglasses company that had a comparable Tom Shoes Warby Parker model in high school. I was a a hip hop artist in a rap group with a a few others in college, which loved that that experience and that journey. And then the third was uh, a box wine 
business, a premium box wine business, where our idea was, um, I had a, a really awesome co-founder. His family was in the wine business, and we wanted to see if we could rethink boxed wine, which is stigmatized to being low quality and is actually really popular in Australia. And so we tried to like merge the idea of the Apple unboxing experience with a premium boxed wine. Hmm. When was this? This was in college. So this okay. was a junior and senior year of college, and then one year after. And that, we have a funny story. Um, we were actually, and we got into a couple Whole Foods. And when you're filling a bladder within a wine box, you have to make sure that you're careful with the yeast that is in the in the wine itself. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we didn't do our due diligence and we actually had few end caps of box wine exploding in a, in a couple Whole Foods stores. Oh no. So that was a, uh, an amazing learning Clean experience. Up in five. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I look back and I'm like, okay, that was a great, yeah, it was awful and not pretty terrible at the time, but was able to take a lot of those really crucial skills and, and, and learnings, key learnings to apply to Dream Pops when we're building now. Interesting. So you learned quite a few lessons, it sounds like, with your first startup, the wine company. What was it called? It was called Just Wine. Cool. And then, so what happened after that? Did you have any internships after college or first jobs? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think my affinity for consumer packaged goods, consumer products started one of my first internships. I worked for a guy named Jesse Itzler, really impressive guy. He has this amazing book called Living with a Seal, but he's all about pushing himself um, outside of his comfort zone but he had an incubator called the 100 Mile Group that invested in consumer brands and tried a number of businesses, Health Warrior, Zico Coconut Water, Sheets Energy Strips, uh, Chloe Soft Serve Fruit Co. Um, he had a number of these consumer investments and would try and leverage guerrilla marketing, social media at the time, which was really nascent. And he was really ahead of the, the uh, curve on that and just unique marketing methods to uh, really scale these brands and all better for you healthy brands which was that first wave five years ago. And so that really inspired me. I loved the concept, the space. I learned a ton from him. And that was definitely a huge, uh, he was a great mentor and, and pushed me in that general direction. So this was at what company? This was a hundred mile group in New York City. Okay, cool. A couple intern uh, internships over my junior and senior years. So that was like a summer internship in between college, spent the summer in New York City. Yep. All right, cool. So you graduate. Yes. And then what? So... I was all in on the uh, the wine business, and obviously, I told you about the uh, the explosion yes. <laughs> of the uh, of the boxes, and you know, just took a took a couple months with my co-founder and just let him know that I was, you know, discontinuing and, and no longer going to be a part of that. Why is that? It's funny, you know. I've talked about this uh, with a few friends of mine. I think we're so paraded by, you know, by how sexy entrepreneurship is and how we believe it's it's, it's so easy, so feasible, it's so on trend, and naturally everyone should be an entrepreneur. It's the it thing to do. Right. But most people lack the real skill set and tools necessary to actually build businesses. Yep. The majority of people. And most people shouldn't be entrepreneurs. Like there's huge sacrifices emotionally, financially, psychologically. And, you know, for me, it makes sense because I love coloring outside the lines. I, I love the unknown. I can't stand structure. So it makes sense for me. But that's where self-awareness is so crucial. And, you know, I learned the hard way. I did not do the due diligence on understanding the wine business and realizing how crucial it is to fall through with promises to your retail partners. And while that was a, you know, a huge disaster then, 
it was a great key learning that, okay, I need structure. I need some real skill sets and tools. And that's where I got a great opportunity to actually work at Tesla. And I was there for, you know, about four and a half months. And while I enjoyed it, um, I was focused mainly on FP&A, financial planning and analysis. And I had a business degree from Berkeley and an opportunity opened up at Houlihan Loki, which is an investment bank. And I thought to myself, okay, I've done a few things that are entrepreneurial. While I really did not want to go into investment banking, I thought, okay, if I can understand how to financially model a business, if I can sit with C-suite executives, um, if I can learn how mergers and acquisitions actually work, how to buy and sell businesses, how to operate them, how CEOs run companies, eventually I will have the tools necessary to go build something. Yeah. If anyone says to me now, except for a select few, what, what should I do? What kind of advice do you have? I say, go get the tools because you don't have them. Yeah, exactly. It's interesting you say that. When I was, um, I was in the fashion industry for a really long time and I knew I wanted to get into the startup world, especially in tech. I'm like, how the hell am I going to do that? I've got to yeah. get, you know, I've got to learn about startups somewhere. And so I worked at Launchpad, which is a top technology accelerator here in LA. But really that transition of where can I go and get the skills that I need to do what I want to do um, is a really important thing to acknowledge and realize about yourself in order to get to the next level. So it's really cool that you did that. Thank you. Um, it. So you were an investment banker. <laughs> yeah, exciting stuff. It was quite a lifestyle change. Um, and look, I think it's a great place to start your career. I was really lucky that I broke in and, and you know, worked with some of the smartest people I know, you know, lived in Excel for four and a half years and put together a number of pitch books and, and closed a number of a few deals. And I was focused on technology, media, and entertainment businesses for the first two years. And then I was actually going to go work at a tech company in San Francisco, more consumer uh, related because I love CPG and consumer packaged goods. And uh, they actually, before I left, they presented me the opportunity to move to Milan for two and a half years because uh, to run their cross-border M&A for an investment bank in Europe that was headquartered in Milan that they had acquired. And so it seemed just like a life-changing experience. Mm -hmm. I've read, you know, I'm obsessed with founder stories and I've read about so many founders who go and live abroad and travel and are inspired and see things that stick out that they think might be a great transplant to the U.S. or vice versa. Yeah. And so jumped at the opportunity and, and moved to Milan, not speaking a lick of uh, Italian. <laughs> <laughs> Had you ever been to Europe before? I'd been a couple times, okay. but, um, you know, I spoke Spanish. So I was like, oh, close enough. <laughs> But you no, know, it was that experience 100% changed my life. Was blessed to to be able to go and live out there culturally, um, understanding. You know, all my coworkers were Italian. I was the only American. Most of the conversations and conference calls were held in Italian. Oh my god! So I learned as quickly as I could and just really loved it and enjoyed it. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm sure you traveled a lot as well because once you're in Europe, you can just go anywhere. It's yeah, awesome. it's very central. Cool. So you were there for how long? Two years? Mm -hmm. Great. And then your two-year mark was up. You're back in LA. Yeah. So it's an interesting story. So that really propelled us to really begin building Dream Pops. Um, what happened was before I left for Milan, I was uh, definitely going through a little bit of, you know, a tough time with, with family issues, et cetera. And um, my buddies were like, hey, let's let's go on a trip down to Colombia and, and travel through Latin America a little bit. And so while I was down there, you know, I saw these paleta shops on every corner. Uh, paleta is a Latin American term for a popsicle. Mm. And I've always been a health nut into 
you know, press juicery, juice served here, juice press. I saw what was happening with those HPP juices. And I was wondering why no one had applied that to frozen ice cream and paletas. So I just started geeking out and pulling research reports on the ice cream space. I was looking at the skinny cows, the Talentis, the Arctic Zeros, the Halo Tops. I was understanding the different evolutions of of ice cream and, and novelties. And, you know, I just started thinking to myself, you know, popsicles, I really think are tired and can be reimagined. And uh, then I was moved to the birthplace of gelato. So it was just kind of a nice natural progression of looking around and looking for innovation. So you kind of got inspired for Dream Pops before going to Milan. Yes. And then you're kind of in Milan just working it through the idea, I guess, quite a bit or? Yeah. Yeah. It was, was inspired about the idea and started just researching the space in Cartagena. And then when I moved to Milan, I love the the founder story of Howard Schultz and how he, you know, discovered the romance of the barista stand in Verona and Milan. And I was thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to Europe. There's so much food innovation in Europe. Maybe I'll find something when I'm out there or be inspired in that general direction of food and beverage, ice cream, gelato, et cetera. And so I started researching, I started literally taking notes and compiling lists of all these gelato and confection businesses and food and beverage companies that were in Milan and researching on blogs. And I, I came across this, this food blog where I met my now co-founder, David Marks, who helped engineer him and Juan Amador. They helped engineer a, a beta version of what is now known as Dream Pops. And so when I saw that blog, um, I called our other co-founder, Three Davids, by the way, so it's a little <laughs> tricky. Uh, I'm DG. DC is uh, my third grade childhood friend who's in LA and DM is in, in Berlin. And he's the one who engineered uh, with Juan Amador who helped engineer the Dream Pop. So they're engineered in Berlin. Uh, they were, you know, initially oh, okay. a beta version of it was. Cool. And so I'd seen a picture of like a, a rough idea of what this concept was that had failed out there. And I picked up the phone and called this guy 10 times. He wouldn't answer, sent him a bunch of emails. Finally, I just, you know, 11th call, he answers my my phone call and he's like, hello, what do you want? Who is this? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I read about you. I really would like to try this product. It looks amazing. Can I fly to Berlin? I'm in Milan. And so I went to his uh, food kitchen and I kid you not, I walked in, I tried it. And the second I tried this, I was like, this is it. Um, I need to need to make this happen. That's awesome. So you're like, how can we partner to bring this to the States, basically? Yep. How can we partner to bring this to the States? I just, something in my gut uh, made me feel like this was the product that I was going to bring to uh, Los Angeles. His dream was to always bring it to California. Cool. So it just seemed really wow. serendipitous. Yeah. And then our other co-founder, DC, in my mind, I had no experience in food and beverage. I was like, I don't know, how are we going to do this? He worked at a, a bagel truck called Yeasty Boys Bagels. He'd worked in, with a few other food and beverage businesses on the manufacturing side. And so he leads the operations and manufacturing. Great. And so, you know, three Davids, let's make it happen. <laughs> That's awesome. So this was in Milan. So you met, you know, David number, well, you were David number one, yes. discovered David number two in Berlin. Yes. You met with him. That's an awesome story. And then, so... What happened? How did you guys come up with the name? You know, after you kind of got the third David, were you back in LA by then? Like, what's the kind of background here? Yeah, so I definitely, we did not do this right away. I wasn't going to quit my job until there was a real proof of concept. And I think that's another thing that I implore most founders to do is create the side hustle after the workday, put in the 10 to 2 a.m.ers 
until you have a real business and a real proof of concept and something that you can actually build. Yeah. So I said to DC and LA, if we hit X amount of revenue and there's a real business here, then I'll quit and move home full time. But for the meantime, I'll do this whenever I can at work, after work, weekends. Um, And so that began, you know, about a year and a half journey of really late nights. Um, Luckily, I was nine hours ahead. So I would have conference calls and would effectively be trying to help build this business from Milan while DC was running it in Los Angeles. And, you know, it got to a point, we brought it to LA, we wrangled up our top 100 closest friends, asked their thoughts, then started to pitch it to businesses. Kind of like a beta tasting. Beta tasting, (laughs) asked those first 50 people, they thought I was crazy, you know, (laughs) like, really, you're popsicles? Are you serious? (laughs) And then we started to really like do these activations and pop-ups and generate revenue with businesses. What was the first flavor that you had at this like beta? Berry dreams. Berry dreams. Berry dreams, raspberry, strawberry, passion fruit. Three, or is that one? It's in one flavor. That's that's actually what you got here on the table. Nice. I'm so excited. Yes, it is. It is one of the top sellers. It's fantastic. Really good. I mean, the design that you guys have is incredible. Thank you. Appreciate um, that. I'll have to let you know about the taste later because I haven't had them yet. Yes, perfect. <laughs> no, but I'm sure they're going to taste just as good <laughs> as they look. They look insane. Thank you. <laughs> and they're healthy, so exactly. they're going to taste good no matter what. So you have this beta tasting of this berry dreams. How did you come up with the name Dream Pops? Yeah, so it comes back down to when people ask like, why are you guys doing what you're doing? Deep down with love along this journey, I feel like we've been lucky to, to kind of experience it, but I've always been obsessed with this entrepreneurial hero's journey and going after your dream, American dream, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, not to be trite and overplayed, but I really just think that if we can build something that makes people healthier, that brings delight and happiness to others, but also inspires them to go after their crazy idea or their childish dream, then that's a, an amazing contribution. and just trying, you know, to have that, that level of inspiration. Yeah. Cool. And so you mentioned something about, you know, proving the concept and doing the side hustle for a while until you do it full time. And that's something that I think is really important and overlooked as well. So what was that number for you in revenue or what was that target you set that would make you decide to go full time? Yeah, I'll share that. That was frankly a hundred thousand dollars in revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Arbitrary doesn't really mean anything. But I said, in my mind, if you're doing six figures in revenue, then that's a real business. You know, Andy Dunn from Bonobo said that was 50,000 in one of his speeches. Yeah, it's all relative. Yeah, there's no right number, right? Yeah, cool. And so how were you selling them at that time? Yeah, I mean, I literally, (laughs) it's funny. I was putting together decks that I would go to businesses, consider more catering, but in my mind, I never... I knew that if we just went to the grocery shelf and threw them on the grocery shelf with some beta packaging, we would die on the grocery store shelf. I don't know how much you know about the consumer package business industry, but if you don't have marketing dollars, you got to pay slotting fees. If you don't have a brand that's recognizable, it's differentiated and you know has a beautiful package, then you're literally not going to sell anything. Mm-hmm. And it's already expensive to operate and get them into the, into the stores. So I was like, let's go to businesses and see if... We can, you know, what's great about our product is we can customize it, customize a flavor formulation, packaging, co-brand. And so in my mind, I was like, 
why don't we create these experiences for brands where we allow them to kind of R&D and create a co-branded product and sell these experiences and pop-ups because the experiential economy is so big and people pay for those experiences. And I pitched it as food as an advertising vehicle. You know, I went to Beats by Dre and I said, what's also cool is we can actually 3D print our molds so we can 3D print any shape into a mold. That's awesome. And that was our first like big thing was we thought that that was going to be the the big, really innovative driver of the growth, which we're now really focused on our patent to design and being recognizable. Because if you're ever changing, people are like, oh, that's a Beats by Dre pop and that's a water bottle pop. You should like reinvent, you know, the childhood like ice cream trucks that 100%. go around and yeah. the song goes on and the kids run out. I was one of Gumball those kids. Eyeballs, loved it. Going after the Mickey Mouse ice cream. SpongeBob. <laughs> <laughs> they're so good, but they're so bad for you. Terrible. How many of those do you think you, I, I kid you not, I probably ate thousands of those. Thousands. Yes. Easily. And it's horrible for you. Terrible. So yeah. are you going to have ice cream trucks? You know what? Ice cream trucks are interesting. We've looked into it. I'm more interested down the line to create the ice cream shop of the future. Ice cream trucks are expensive. The permitting is a nightmare. I don't want to go down that route. I mean, because I'm saying if you do an ice cream truck, just, I don't know, like, would you change the song, not change the song? You got to rethink it all. We would change the song. (laughs) All right. (laughs) But no, but nostalgia is, is huge. Yeah. Exactly what you said. You think back to those, you know, various shapes of, characters. And, and for me, you know, we went to these businesses and and started to see that they were excited about having the ability to engage with their customer for them to consume their brand. And we could also print on the popsicle stick. We could create custom packaging. We create these co-branded pop-up bars for them. So we've kind of built our business as an experiential agency to start to get the brand recognition. And then we're like, let's really create a CPG business accordingly. Awesome. Sounds like you've been doing more like B2B deals. Yeah. So 2017 was all really B2B. Great. And then in 2016, 2017, we're all really B2B. And then 18, we launched our e-commerce direct-to-consumer site in May. And then we also launched our partnership with Starbucks on the wholesale side. And now rest of 18 and then 19, our big strategy is wholesale and scaling within the natural channel. So now we're available in Erewhon, uh, Bristol Farms, You know, we're with UNFI and hoping to be in thousands of uh, specialty and natural grocers throughout the country. Yeah. Whole Foods and... You name it. Yeah. Absolutely. So you mentioned Starbucks. Yes. I didn't know they sell popsicles. Yeah. So we did a pilot for three months, five stores in Los Angeles, 10 in Portland. Amazing experience. We're not in there for like right now. Um, It's more of a seasonal situation, but yeah, it was a great summer. That's awesome. Yeah. Are they like coffee popsicles? Do you like adjust flavors and stuff? Well, no. We So we were selling our product, the coconut latte, the berry dreams, mango, rosemary, and vanilla matcha. Nice. And then chocolate lion as well. So all five flavors we're selling. That's awesome. Yeah. So tell me about the team so far. How big is the team? Team is still lean. We've got three co-founders. Um, we've got seven part-time people who help with manufacturing. We have our own factory in downtown LA. So we're vertically integrated. We actually have new products coming too, which are very exciting um, in the next year. So keep an eye out. We've got, you know, a handful of investors and we just brought on a head of sales. So yeah, lean team, but uh, it's growing. How has the hiring process been for you and what have been some of your challenges? God, probably one of the hardest things in building a business. And yeah, I mean, I have a, a great story I can kind of tell you about one of the harder experiences, I think 
when you're building a company, they're number one, you have your closest friends and just friends of friends who are supporting you build it. And a natural affinity is to hire friends. And when you mix emotional, personal, and business, there are a lot of serious conflicts that can arise. Yeah. And so, you know, we were looking into bringing somebody on, you know, more on the operation side who was in that category of friend plus trying to create a business relationship. And it actually ended up being, uh, you know, we did not end up moving forward um, and it got a little bit ugly. And so I would just really uh, recommend that when you're hiring, you take a step back and realize while hiring people you know or are friendly with is the most comfortable, it's not necessarily the most value add. And for me now, it's been about finding people who are far smarter than me in their respective disciplines that can really bring this thing to the next level. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I've had an issue when I hired someone and I wasn't friends with them before, but then, you know, I, I was a solo founder. So it's kind of like, then you get really close, too close So with much them. respect for that, doing that by yourself, by the way. <laughs> Thank oh my you. God. Thank you. Yes, extremely challenging. Um, but yeah, it's really hard to separate business. And, you know, when you're, you're working so closely with someone for so long, you get really attached or you become friends with them, really close friends. And it's hard to create those boundaries, um, which you can learn the hard way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So your team sounds awesome. And so they're working remotely or are they, you guys have an office space? We have an office space in downtown LA, which is connected to our factory. Awesome. So yeah, it's interesting with our business. We're not always in the office. We're definitely on the move and buyer meetings, doing these pop-ups and activations, traveling a lot. But yeah, we are definitely, I would say half the weeks in our office in downtown LA. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs that are looking to hire the right people? I think you really need to not hire your close friends <laughs> or friends. Again. I think you need to search for the brightest in their respective category, discipline, whether it's sales, marketing, finance, really tap your network, leverage if you have the right headhunters or LinkedIn, et cetera, who've worked at comparable businesses and find people that can provide the most value as opposed to, you know, really avoid comfort of, oh, I know this person or this person knows this person. Forget about that and really find people who can provide value. Yeah. It's really easy to hire the wrong people just because you're trying to fill the hole, you know, quickly and get moving. Yep. Yep. It's that'll kill you actually in the long run. Yeah, exactly. So have you raised any capital for your company? Yes, we have raised money couple rounds, friends and family, and then, uh, you know, a smaller VC. So we just closed that last month. Congratulations. Thank Are you. Are you allowed to say how much you've raised so far? Um, you know, I'd like to not share that, but I'll sure. say it's significant, but not, not significant. It's, I'll say it's a little less than, uh, than a million dollars. Like a seed round. Yes, Yeah. exactly. Cool. And so how was the fundraising process for you? Fundraising is very challenging. It's, uh, wow. Is it, you know, you, you look at, hiring versus fundraising versus even just building a product that people want. It's another job. And you meet with a number of investors and potential investors, VCs, angels, et cetera. And, you know, sometimes they give you the time of day and sometimes they are on their phone during the entire presentation when you're up until 3 a.m. the night before preparing. And I would just say to 
investors out there who are looking at businesses, I think there's a like a structural issue because investors look at hundreds, if not thousands of deals, and then entrepreneurs are trying to court these respective investors. Yep. So I get that investors are tired and it's hard to be empathetic when you're looking at hundreds of deals, but you need to remember that these entrepreneurs are hopefully the good ones that you're meeting with are all in. And when you are on your phone or not present, it's incredibly upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> so just the importance of giving people the time of day and being at, and, and having empathy. That's the one thing I'll, I'll say. Definitely. What have been some of the, well, it sounds like you've had a pretty bad uh, experience already. Is yeah, there there's a, one I'm thinking another about. Another <laughs> worse one? Can you talk about another story? Some, and then we'll talk about one of the best meetings you had. So what's one of the worst things an investor said or an investor meeting that you had that didn't go very well at all? And then what was a really great one? Yeah, I think, look, I haven't had like terrible investor meetings. I think just investors who act like they're very interested and then are there for other strategic means or key learnings or trying to look under the hood. Mm -hmm. I think that's one experience. On the other side, you know, when you find those people that you connect with that believe in you as a founder, early stage investing, yes, it's technical and there's got to be a margin and a business plan and, you know, a legitimate deck and a founding team. But it's really, there's a lot of gut investing and there's a lot of um, you're going to bet on the team, you're going to bet on the person. But when you find that that individual or those groups of individuals who see you for your potential and believe in it, it's really powerful and yeah. exciting. So Definitely. How do you measure success? What metric do you use? It's a good question. I still struggle with it every day because I've been so obsessed with becoming successful. For me, when I was first starting out after college and going into banking, success was all about optimizing my financial returns and, you know, how much money can you make? How quickly, you know, want to travel, want to consume. Now, you know, I've really evolved in the last two and a half years since going on this path. And you need to make a lot of adjustments when you're going from an investment banking or finance lifestyle and just experience in life to the struggles of being an entrepreneur and going to build something. So something I, I genuinely enjoy doing is just when I have, I have a lot of days now and I've practiced it is just waking up and being grateful that I can go out. I'm, you know, I'm fortunate enough that I get to go out every day with our team and go build something that I, that I love and that I enjoy doing. And that I think is, if, if you can do that for most days, cause not can do that every day, there are always trade-offs, but if you can go out and, and be excited to build something every day and feel grateful for it, then I think that's success. Yeah. And so you mentioned this evolution, which, I mean, it's like zero to 60 when you're starting a company. You're just, you're in development mode in all sorts of ways. You're just learning so much about yourself and about business and just a lot. Personally, how have you evolved and developed? Back to what we were just talking about, understanding how little you really need, making sure you're really cognizant of how you're spending your money, making certain lifestyle adjustments and choices, what about like mentally, like mentally, where were you? Did you have limiting beliefs early on? What did you do to kind of build that mental strength or confidence? Yeah. When people ask what's the hardest part of being an entrepreneur or building a company, in my mind, it's checking the ego at the door and not caring what other people think and dealing with the noise. Um, within the first six to 18 months of building anything, 
if you don't have naysayers, you're obviously not talking to enough people and getting enough feedback. And my biggest challenge was all of these coworkers and colleagues I had that were like, you're going to go start a popsicle business. Like, are you joking? Like what? Ice cream? I, I don't understand. It. I don't get it. And a lot of people will project their insecurities because that's not their own respective path. Yep. And so me, the mental evolution was, okay, stop worrying about what other people think. It's easy to say that, but really practicing it. Mm -hmm. um, I do, you know, I'll, I'll admit this. I, I have a, just a, a life coach that I FaceTime with. I've never met in person, but Kai is an amazing uh, human being and has been really helpful and just helps really create morning practices. Uh, every morning I have a certain visual exercise, meditation and breathing practice. It helps me stay focused and focus on gratitude. And can you talk about that a little bit more? I like this. Yeah, I like do the, you like that? It's the a little practice. Weird. <laughs> no, it's not weird. This is, I actually try to talk about this a lot in yeah. every interview because the personal, these habits are things no one talks about, which leads to success and no one talks about it. Let's hear your practice. I want to know your routine. Yeah. You know, I look, it evolves. It's, it's, it's constantly changing, but it, it's a number of breathing exercises. It's really creating this other gratitude exercise where you think about every facet of your life that you're grateful that you have. The fact that, you know, born in America, like, come on, that's massive. The opportunities that are, that are provided to me, go to bed with you know, food in my stomach and a roof over my head, amazing friends, family, and people that have like, you know, made sacrifices for me to have this life and and going through that plus just a visual exercise of what am I going to accomplish? What is our team going to accomplish? What is the vision for the future? And why are you doing this? Like, why are you selling popsicles? Mm -hmm. What is the core foundation and reason? And, you know, understanding, okay, want to create something that that is a positive people eating healthier products and ice cream and, and sweets and confections, but also inspiring others to go after that crazy idea, accomplish it, that's kind of what drives and fuels me. Cool. And so you have this routine in the morning where you're meditating, you're, you know, acknowledging and having a lot of gratitude and that kind of fuels you for the day to keep you focused. Yeah. And I noticed that when I am more and more consecutive with it, obviously when you're traveling or you're busy or you have deadlines and things that need output, uh, work output that, that needs to get done, the more consecutive I am, the more humbled and centered and productive I am and confident and just feeling good about what we're doing. It's really important to have that supportive network, whether it's, you know, a life coach or a mentor or a therapist or all of them. Yeah. <laughs> you need those people in your when life. When you were building your company, did you have people that were like, what's this thing you're doing? 150%. Like, what are you doing with your life? I mean, I think, I think a lot of people actually don't even know, <laughs> they still don't know what I do <laughs> or what it is. How about the question? This is my favorite, right? Is that what you're doing full time? Right. Oh yeah. Full time. Right. That's what you're doing. I still think there's people <laughs> that don't realize I had employees. I raised capital. I actually had a real business. Like yeah. I think there's people that like think that I'm just saying I'm a founder of a company that actually doesn't exist. <laughs> the entrepreneurs. Like, right. Right. The entrepreneurs see other entrepreneurs, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you know, people are going to have their own opinion about things and, and especially things that you're capable of. I mean, I came from the modeling industry. I knew nothing. I had to self-teach myself everything. Three-year financials had to figure it out. I had to, I self-taught myself everything. It's awesome. Do you have a morning practice? 
Am I being interviewed now? I'm, I'm <laughs> just saying, I got pretty uh, open out there. No, it's okay. <laughs> um, I do not really have a routine. Okay. I should be meditating a lot more than I do. I definitely think that visualization is key. It's something I've used to achieve a lot of things in my life. So I think visualization is extraordinarily powerful. And so that's why I wanted, I wanted to hear what your practice is, because no one really talks about the spiritual side of business. Huge. Yeah. I think it's uh, one of the most underrated sides of it. And I initially, you know, pawned it off as something that wasn't that important. So I did too. And I still try <laughs> <laughs> to pawn it off and pretend like it's not important. It's much easier to say, oh, well, business is X, you know, plus Y equals Z. Let me just figure out the formula and I'll be fine. And it's not, it's not like that at all. Exactly. So being a founder, we kind of touched on this a little bit, involves a lot of patience and persistence. How do you build that strength? Do you work out a lot? Do you eat healthy, obviously? Yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize that if you want to create anything that of material value or that is a real business, it takes years to build a CPG business successfully. It takes three, five, 10, 15, 20 years. And um, we're all so impatient. Millennials want it now, now, now. Instagram, mm-hmm. you know, post it. Yeah. And so... Patience has been one of my biggest challenges, but something that it's funny, the more and more you learn to really embrace it, you become a stronger and stronger person. Obviously, other things are working out, hanging out with friends, playing golf. Golf's a great, you know, outlet and just trying to be outside as much as possible. Allowing yourself to take a break. Yes. Yeah. That took me a long time to learn. I didn't take a vacation for four years. Really? Not a single vacation? That's fantastic. (laughs) This year, I went on two vacations already. (laughs) Yeah. And I think too, burnout is very real. And when you're putting in uh, crazy hours and you forget to invest in yourself, your health, it's very important to give yourself that hour, whenever it is, to just focus on something that you love and that's not work-related. It also kind of drives additional creativity. So that's really important. Yeah. So what's something you wish you would have known before you started your business? There are so many times where anxious or panicked or freaked out. I wish I just would have known that there are various obstacles and you can reach out to your network and people will help you. I think that you need to also realize that what you go to market with is never going to be the finished product And the importance of shipping and getting a product out into the world and receiving feedback and also not being scared that someone's going to steal your idea. Everyone has ideas. The people who actually execute them are the ones who succeed. And also the people who get in front of and and interact with as many people who who actually can provide valuable insight that can propel your business, help you um, really rethink it and iterate until you hit product market fit and really understand what you're doing. It's about being vulnerable and and saying, I'm going to put something out into the universe. I'm going to take constructive criticism. I'm not better than anyone. I'm, I'm going to be everyday humble and take those learnings, iterate, build, improve incrementally, and that'll compound eventually to build something successful. Yeah. I mean, the ability to adapt because you're adapting to changes in the product. You know, you might have like, I really love this flavor. It has to be it. But then what if no one likes it? You know, yeah. <laughs> you're the only one who likes it. It's not going to work. Or the market shifts. I mean, the market shifts have been insane over the past even just two years. So just keeping up with trends and the market. 
So yeah, the ability to adapt is really, really important. Absolutely. What's a moment that made you feel most proud? Moment that made me feel most proud was when the first time that we actually saw our product sitting on a, a store shelf and being purchased by just a complete random stranger. Right in front of you? Yeah. We That's just awesome. were doing a walkthrough. Like I think it was our first day um, going into, it was actually at Erewhon, which is really awesome. And just seeing somebody go to the store shelf, buy a Dream Pop, enjoy it, love it, didn't know who I was. Did you say something? No, I just kind of like... How did you not say something? Because I wanted to just... You were just being an observer. <laughs> yeah. So in the store shelf, that was one. I think two, launching our e-com site was so much work, building a direct-to-consumer platform on Shopify, getting a little bit of press for it, but mainly just... I've never built like a Shopify site or or put together. We did a full rebrand. We had crazy deadlines and just getting it off the ground and, and actually making it happen was something that I was pretty proud of. Yeah. When it feels real and you see customers enjoying what you're doing, it's really rewarding. Yeah. So probably first that launch, first customer on e-com and then at the store level. So how do you work to improve yourself so that you can best lead your company? Being a leader is pretty tough and management itself, managing people is difficult. So what do you do to improve those skills? Definitely. I'm really lucky. I have a great core group of friends that are all entrepreneurial and building like a, a number of friends that are building businesses. So when I talk to these, you know, whether it's my friend Cody, who's got an awesome oral care company or Greg, who's got an awesome apparel company or Steven, who's got a great accessories business. We have all, we're really able to cross pollinate and share best practices for how we lead. Um, so having a support system and just going out into the community, I love sitting down with other entrepreneurs. It's like commiserate, yeah. but also just share great tools that, that can allow you to be a better leader. I also, you know, with DC, with my co-founder, I sit down and, and as often as we can just say, how can I be a better CEO? Where can I focus my efforts? I think um, one of my biggest things is, is learning how to separate emotions from uh, operating a business and, and just the business results at the end of the day. And so constantly trying to figure out whether it's through meditation, working out, talking to other founders, how to improve upon certain weaknesses and weak points, as opposed to micromanaging, understanding how I can be a little bit more of a of a delegator and, and trust others uh, to, to get the job done. Yeah. That sense of community is really, really important. I mean, even for specific things like, Hey, do you have a recommendation for a lawyer who's not $800 an hour? Exactly. <laughs> have a recommendation for CRM. What do you use? You know, I mean, these things are so important. I think most people are just scared to ask. Like yes. literally the act of most undervalued asset is a cold email or a cold LinkedIn message or a DM. Because if you ask, like there's a probability that someone will respond and help you, whether it's low or high. But if you never actually take the action, there's zero probability of success there. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I'm sure you can relate, but the amount of times I've sent hundreds of cold emails or calls or texts or, or DMs, whatever it is, and then there's value creation from doing that. It's It compounds and, and actually comes to fruition a lot more often than you'd think. Yeah, it's insane how much it moves the needle. 
Um, and I try to offer up to people that I meet, like I met with someone the other day and I was like, no, really email me if you need anything, you know, because once you become that person who's like, you learn to open up, you ask the questions, you actually realize how helpful it is to finally open up and then get the help that you need. And then you offer it to someone else and you kind of realize they're probably not going to email me. <laughs> they do exactly. I would say that 20% will actually follow up and yeah. that's the, that's the successful 20%. Exactly. Um, but also I think you can relate to and. You'd be surprised how many people want to help you Yep. with no monetary gain. And then you have that experience. Like what we've been building is on the shoulders of other people who have stuck their neck out or took a risk or took a chance. And so you just want to pay that forward to the next cohort or, or group or person that's going to go out there and, and try and create something. Yeah. And I think one of the misconceptions about asking for help, I think some founders are like, oh, I'm just going to ask that founder for a coffee, you know, and it's like, don't really just ask for a coffee. Like try to say, hey, I've got this issue, this challenge I'm working on. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you have time for like a five minute call? Or even just in the email, I'm dealing with this. What do you think? I also think just doing like, put the time and do some research on the person. Say, oh, I read this article about your business or, you know, I looked through your website and I noticed this was wrong or I'm a huge fan of blank and what you're doing. Definitely like show them that you've researched them and put some time and effort as opposed to just, I need this, I need this, I want this. Can you connect me with this person? When you show that you've actually diligenced them and and been thoughtful with your request and then you put forward the ask, it's you or I are a lot more likely to respond than just an ask. Yeah, I've actually just never gotten a random ask without them actually like, do you get random asks from people no, you've never- No, but come on, you've heard, I'm sure you've gotten a cold email like, Hey, hope all is well. I saw that you're connected to this person on LinkedIn. Do you mind making an introduction? But you've gotten requests from people that maybe you're not as close with or someone that's reached out and asked for something with, you know, a little bit, like very little time and effort into... Right, like why they actually need the intro. Well, also for intros, I always say like, it's so much easier if you just email me something I can forward them. Yes. Then I can gauge their interest yeah. and then make an intro if they're interested. Because otherwise, I personally don't like to intro people unless I have consent from my friend or totally. you know, connection. Depending on the person, obviously. Yes. So if you could change anything about your entrepreneurial journey, what would you have done differently? It's hard to have regrets and to go back and do things differently. I think I wish I was a little more focused on the channel. I think with ice cream online, there are a lot of challenges with regards to shipping and perishable shipping. I'm still very long on DTC for perishable. I do wish that you know we would have thought through the frozen 3PL a little bit earlier on and also just you know being conscious of for entrepreneurs, often you like you have a million ideas. You want to accomplish them all. You want to do five product extensions, this packaging, pints, you name it. I think just being really focused on locking in your product, understanding your channel and distribution, mm -hmm. and and making sure you take it to market and and you know generate revenue and build a company around those very narrowly focused value propositions. And so. That would be the one thing looking back. We were trying to 3D print molds. We were trying to be an experiential agency. We were trying to do direct-to-consumer online. We were trying to do wholesale. I think just being really focused and tackling two channels really well or one channel really well. Mind you, I don't think we could have had the success that we've had in certain channels had we not done it the way we did. Mm -hmm. So I do think there are benefits to making some of those investments and, and that time. But... 
as I said, I think just being really focused early on. Yeah. I think that's really, really important to stay focused because you're right. As an entrepreneur, we're creatives. We like to create. We're yes, men and women. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that sounds like such a great idea. We should totally collaborate on that. Yes, yes. And then right. I have a million other <laughs> things in my Right. Then other schedule. things begin to fall to the wayside because again, as a small team or startup, it's like you only have so much time and resources to accomplish things. So yes. you have to be really careful about what you choose to spend time on and pursue. I think also another thing looking back, um, just understanding the importance of a team and bringing on the right people to help you as opposed to thinking you can micromanage everything yourself and burn out. Right. When have you felt most defeated and how did you get back on your feet? Out the gate of building any any company or, or brand or business, you have a thesis that you go to market with. Mm-hmm. And as I said, we had this thesis about 3D printing molds and building this B2B business. And then we had this thesis about e-commerce and direct-to-consumer. I think when we got to a point where we had to adjust our focus on channel and really double down on where we knew we could win, while e-commerce is very important for us and still a huge channel and, and revenue generator, I think understanding that we really need to tackle wholesale was was crucial for us. And so I think there's a point where you question yourself and you worry that you're not thinking like that you missed something or that you, you know, with with this initial beta in the market, we were going out to all these brands and we weren't closing enough deals with respect to uh, the 3D printing of the mold and, and getting those custom contracts. And so then I was worried that I had failed um, our investors and that I had missed something. And I, at the end of the day, I think just being able to sit in what feels like failure and really understanding the core facets of your business. And then as opposed to beating yourself up, uh, using that to drive you in other creative directions that you think will build your company. And so, you know, I think one was when a thesis didn't quite pine out. Another was, you know, when we needed to raise more money and, and really attack a new channel was definitely nervous about not being able to make that a reality and make that happen. And you push yourself. When your back's against a wall, you'd be shocked at what you're capable of accomplishing. And so are there any books that you've read that you think are really great that you would recommend? Yeah, there's a a book called The Startup Playbook that I love. I'm not sure if you've read it. Mm -hmm. It profiles like a hundred entrepreneurs and then they each have four pages of quotes quick founder stories and then their nuggets of wisdom for being an entrepreneur. And when you read that book, it's really an incredible, you know, it's a lot like Tools of Titans from Tim Ferriss. I was just thinking of that book. I love that book. Yeah. This, it was an early rendition of that, which is also fantastic. You know, obviously love Zero to One. My favorite book is The Alchemist though, to be yeah. cheesy and just be. <laughs> I read that so long ago. I have to read it again, but that's really a book that sticks out in my mind as, you know, something that just totally changed my entire mentality on how life kind of works. Yes. <laughs> it's a good one. It's definitely a necessity to read. What advice do you have for aspiring entrepreneurs? I know we hit on a bunch of different topics here, but what would be like the one big takeaway you would want listeners to take from this conversation? It's really crucial before going out and investing your time, resources, and being into a a venture company to understand what that actually means and to not just be paraded with Hollywood 
television shows, content that allows you to think that just being an entrepreneur is a trendy check in the box. Mm -hmm. I really think you need to invest in your skill set and be able to provide value. I, I would say do two things. One, go work for somebody who has built a successful company that you can shadow, watch, replicate, and learn from, who can serve as, you know, a mentor. And I, I don't like the word mentors because I think it's overrated. It's just overdone. And it's not about mentors. It's just about surrounding yourself in the environment and understanding what it takes to actually create something. Two, if you don't go work for a company or a startup, go work somewhere where you can craft a skill set, whether it's modeling, whether it's you know, law, gain a, a foundation that will be applicable to whatever it is you're going to build. And so with when I look at banking, what that gave me was the ability to understand margins, build a PL, balance sheet, cash flow statement, the ability to know how to raise money. And without that, there's no way I, I would be where I am today. So it's one of those two things. Yeah. Awesome advice. So what's next for Dream Pops? Yeah, it's it's gonna be a very exciting 2019. We're about to really tackle the grocery channel, the natural channel, hoping to be in a few thousand stores by the end of the year and uh, to really take this business to the next level. We've got a a few new products we're going to be releasing as product extensions, which is really exciting. Can you talk about any of them? I can't share them. No spoilers? can't share them yet, but anything is Popsicle. And what's great is I think it's taken us a couple years to find our sweet spot to really figure out where this business... Yeah, seriously, right? (laughs) This is like the most punny podcast (laughs) of all time. (laughs) To understand our business and where we are going to win, I can see the vision. I'm very excited. And we have an amazing team in place. So much hunger and and drive. And I'm really excited to show everyone what we've been working on. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited. Thank you so much for these goodies you have here for me. Of course. We've got the frozen dream pop which I'm taking home with me and probably eating on the car ride home. Yes, with the berry <laughs> dreams and the mango rosemary. And that's that's the four pack. Perfect. I'm yes. excited. Well, thanks so much for joining me here on the show. It was really awesome hearing your story and um, love what you're doing. Love plant-based everything. So thank you for creating such an awesome product. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate uh, you letting us share our story. So thanks. Thanks for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. If you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at stairwaytoceo at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends and leave us a review. Until next time, keep on climbing. Keep on climbing.